On this episode of the After the Timeout podcast, we are joined by Andrew Weber, assistant boys basketball coach at Lockport High School. We talked to Coach Weber about a day in the life of a college assistant, being named the interim head coach at the college level, taking over a program and coaching in high school post-college career. As always, thank you for listening to the After the Timeout podcast. All right, so let's start out with our opening tip, Coach. Um, you've you've worked, and looking at kind of your background, you've worked a ton of camps, Duke, Michigan State, Purdue. Um, first of all, two-part question here, what are some of the things you learned working those camps, right? Because there's a lot of coaches, um, and I don't know, maybe it's not as prevalent anymore that coaches work camps. I don't know. I, you know, maybe you just don't hear about it as much, but like, you know, you hear coaches talk a lot about when they work these camps, they learn so much and the camaraderie with other coaches and, and the connections there. So what are some of the things you learned working those camps? What I learned was what was nice about working those camps is you got to work the stations, right? You got to actually coach. Um, and everyone's there kind of in a similar situation, right? Whether you're trying to get into the coaching business, like I was at that time, or um, high school, small college coaches that, one, you know, maybe trying to make some, some networking connections to move up some levels or, you know, just trying to learn. And, and that's really what the camps were. Yes, it was fun. Um, it was great to work camp, you know, being inside Cameron Indoor Stadium, uh, being at Michigan State, Purdue, right, top programs, at, you know, at the highest level. But for me, what was interesting was a lot of similarities, right, like drills that I was taught as a kid that, we did in youth practices are still drills that I do as coaching that a lot of coaches do all over the country. Um, but what was kind of cool, like Michigan state, which I think was the most interesting was like Tom Izzo walked around camp and here I am going into summer, going into my senior year of college, working Michigan state camp. And I'm working on a passing drill while coach Izzo is standing there watching, right? Like talking about being nervous at the highest level, you know? So well, for me, what I learned was different ideas, um, different ways of doing similar things, um, you know, putting maybe a different emphasis on something uh, within that drill or just uh, how to be more efficient with those drills. And, and like I said, I was 21, 22, uh, so still trying to learn on how to coach. Uh, so learning more of the efficiency side of, of some of the drills uh, was something that I took from those camps. All right, second part of the question then. Um, everybody who works at camp probably has a good story. So what's a, what's a good, good story from working one of those camps? Uh, I don't know if my story is a good one. Um, so again, summer going into my senior year of college, working Duke camp, um, flying out of O'Hare, flight gets delayed. Um, so I end up actually missing almost the first day of camp uh, because my flight was so delayed. Uh, that I didn't get there until late afternoon, early evening. Um, and, you know, they sent a manager over to pick me up from the airport. Uh, so, unfortunately, I don't have any great camp stories, uh, per se. But uh, I would say my first one would probably be just showing up late to uh, to Duke basketball camp the first year I worked it. All right. I'll, I'll tweak it a little bit then. Who was, the, like, a coach, a college coach or a coach you worked with, like, the best uh, storyteller coach, like, who, when you sat down with them at dinner or wherever, you're like, oh man, like this guy, this guy can tell, tell a story. So, you know, um, Chris Matola uh, works for, I think CBS maybe calls a lot of college games. 
Um, he's actually, I believe, the son-in-law of Coach K. Uh, his dad worked Duke camps. So hearing a lot of his stories about camps that he had worked, uh, you know, some of those old school stories about camps, just listening to his kind of stories, uh, for me, was kind of interesting uh, to hear one as a coach, but also as a dad, kind of what he watched and saw at camps and worked at camps. So hearing hearing those things kind of you know, like reminded me, okay, right, you can still coach, right, regardless of you know all of us think things have changed, but you can still coach, and there's still a big emphasis on those small details, uh, but also you know making sure that you're leaving an impact on the kids that come through those camps. All right, now I'll add one more. Best like you're in these camps and you're coaching a kid and couple years later down the road you're like oh wait I coached that kid who 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 is that kid you're like oh wait a minute I had that kid in camp um I haven't had that experience yet um but I was in Rockford at the time um obviously Rockford Hanigas was in our conference in our area there was a kid that was going into that high school um that I had known previously of um he was out there at camp the same time that I was uh, which I thought was kind of cool he's a huge Duke fan uh, but later as I got into the college coaching ranks, uh, I tried to recruit him. Wasn't very successful, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah, kind of, kind of local tie all the way out there on the, on the East coast. The Rockford connections weren't working, huh? Unfortunately not. Right. Just like everybody else. Um, I originally got out of the area for two years and, and came back and, and that's what those kids wanted to do. So can't blame them. So <laughs> let's get into a little bit of, uh, your life as an assistant, you know, Todd and I talk to a lot of, a lot of coaches and we always say, you know, people always, you know, want to get into coaching or, or, you know, we, we talk about players that want to get into, and do you really want to be a college basketball player? And then they realize it's like, well, I'd start my day at 5am and it goes to 11pm. So, you know, somebody though, I was a D3 assistant myself, so I, I can kind of speak from experience. Do you really want to be a D3 assistant? So it was one of those where I kind of wanted you to just take our listeners through, you know, what was your life like as, a, as an assistant when you started at Rockford? I was in a great situation. Um, I had just graduated from Rockford University. Uh, was fortunate enough to be a GA immediately right out of school. Uh, so my teammates now became my players. And it was great. Uh, Coach Repsom allowed me to you know, take charge of things uh, right from day one, right? Kind of overseeing strength and conditioning, um, got my feet wet right into recruiting that summer after I graduated. Uh, so it was, it was great. It was tough because as you know, right, in the recruiting process, you're going to be told no way more than you are yes. Uh, so I, I took a lot of those no's uh, to heart and, and got upset and frustrated with the recruiting process, not because of, you know, the grind, the quote unquote grind of it, uh, but just the fact of, you know, missing out on kids and kids that you felt like it, you made great relationships with and them telling you no, right? And they're always, they always tell you, uh, you know, coach, I loved you. I wish I could play for you, but um, so-and-so is, is a better fit for me. Or, uh, you know, I just felt better. And you start questioning, well, what could I have done differently, right? What could I have changed in the recruiting process? And, and over time, you learn that, you know, just fit, right? And, and situations, especially at D3 level when it comes down to finances, right? Everybody's trying to find the best fit that way. Uh, but it is, it, it's a long, 
there's a lot of long days, long nights, uh, especially for us, right? We, we try to recruit everywhere. Uh, you know, I was driving up to make a trip in the middle of winter up to, to Minneapolis uh, to recruit a kid, watch one game, right? Making that five, five and a half hour drive up there, getting back at two o'clock in the morning. Um, and then, you know, you're having to go to office or at the time I was, I was a GA, so I was working on my master's degree, right? Having to get up the next day and go to class, right? Kind of set an example that way. Um, so GA for two years. And then fortunately uh, we were able to get, turn in one of those GAs to a full-time assistant position. Uh, so I was the first ever full-time assistant at Rockford. Uh, and really nothing changed other than the title. Uh, we were able to grow the JV program. So on top of recruiting, uh, overseeing strength and conditioning, overseeing recruiting, overseeing player development. Uh, so at the D3 level specifically, you get to do everything. Right? There's not an aspect uh, of the program that I wasn't able to get my hands on and, and either take full control of or work with Coach Revson during that time. So it's it's early mornings, late nights, uh, and, and a lot of, uh, you know, building relationships in between there. You know, not just with recruits, but also current players as well. All right. So you're an assistant coach, and then all of a sudden they say, hey, you're the interim head coach. Okay, right? So you're doing all your, your stuff, and now you moved over, what, that 18 inches, right, for, yep. for a little bit? to uh the, the head 18 inches. Um, I think it's 18 inches right isn't that what a chair is I don't know that's what they that's what they say I don't know but uh I'm I'm a PE guy I'm not very good at math <laughs> um what like tell us a little bit about that experience and like and, and what was that like and you know dealing with that transition and how that whole process went oh it was uh it was an interesting one so the Saturday before Coach Robson stepped down, uh, we had played a road game against Concordia, Wisconsin, top team in the league. Um, tough game for us, didn't go well. So after the game, where him and I are talking, discussing the game, right, trying to figure out, looking at box scores, trying to figure out what we could have done better, move forward. At the end of that, he says, hey, you know, Monday morning, what do you got? Nothing. Okay, great. Let's meet for breakfast. Awesome, right? Not out of the norm to, for him and I to go to breakfast, lunch, um, kind of the, the thing that we did as a staff uh, just to get out of the office. So Monday, so over the weekend, I kind of joked around with my family, like, hey, you know, Coach Repson's stepping down, right? I'm, I'm taking over. I got a chance to take over. Didn't really think it was going to be the possibility. Um, but, you know, kind of just to seek it out, just a thought that ran through my head. So Monday morning, we meet for breakfast. Uh, actually at the McDonald's located right across campus. Um, so we're sitting there talking and, and you know, he, he's telling me, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to step down. Um, Want to focus on some family things. You know, he has his reasons. And sitting there and, you know, just surprised, right? You know, it was kind of a joke over the weekend, but just shock, surprise. Um, never really would have guessed it. Uh, so it kind of took place there. Then we go over to campus. He meets with the guys, lets them know what's exactly going on. Uh, and then after he talks to them, I went in there and talked to him. Uh, I was very lucky at the time that we had the players that we had, um, guys that I had been with that, you know, had a part in recruiting, built great relationships with them. Uh, and they, they were all for it. They were excited for it. Um, some guys thought they were going to get, you know, kind of hoping for, you know, changing coaches where, you know, maybe some changes in roles, changes in situations. We're midway through the season. Um, 
struggling a little bit. So trying to just, hey, let's stay together. Let's try to figure out what we can change, what we can do uh, to finish out this second half of the season as best as we can. Uh, and we started out rough. I think we lost the first two, lost the first three games, um, I think by 25 plus first three games. So uh, <laughs> got, uh, got the head coaching experience quickly. Uh, but also at the same time, you know, I, I had a mentor who Coach Koopman was a, is the head baseball coach at Rockford. And he was talking to me throughout the whole time, like, hey, use this opportunity to, to make it your program, right? I, when the chain first happened, I kept my office the same. Uh, didn't move into the head coach's office. Uh, but he said, hey, make sure you use this opportunity to, to make this program yours, right? You don't know what the future is going to hold, but if this is what you want, this is the job that you want, right? Make it yours right now. And, and that's what I did. So I moved over into the head coach's office. Um, as a staff, we went through and said, okay, what do we want to change? And what do I want to change to make the program to what I wanted, wanted us to be? And we started making some subtle changes, changing some things, X's and O's. Um, but the biggest thing was we just wanted to get guys to buy into what we had and what I wanted the program to be. Um, so went to some upperclassmen and you know, kind of held them accountable to what we wanted and what the expectations were going to be moving forward. Um, you know, just like anywhere else, there was some normal fight back in the beginning, but uh, we had a player join us midway through the season. That was a huge impact player for us from the get-go. Um, and since he changed, our, our program changed. And like I said, he was a great talent, uh, but he was also a guy that bought into what I was trying to do uh, in that short amount of time. And, and from there, we went on a, a three-game win streak for the first time in a few years, um, had good success, missed the conference tournament by a game. Um, and from there, right, like I remember the day he resigned, had meeting, had practice, went out recruiting, and, and told everybody, like, hey, like, my plan is to be here until the administration says differently, and went on the road and got, got some players and built the program from there. So I, I do have an interesting follow-up. So, you know, you, you kind of struggled those first few games. Kind of take us, take us through your mindset. You know, I, I've kind of asked guests in the past about a, something I read in a book by Cody Royal about imposter syndrome, about being a little bit of a head coach. You know, so kind of take us through that mindset of those first few games. You struggle, you know, you had just become a college head coach. Did you, did you ever look around and be like, do I really know what I'm doing? Like... Every assistant, you know, says they, they want to be a head coach, right? They all say, well, if we did this, you know, or if I was a head coach, this is what I would do differently, or this is what I would have done. And we all do that, right? Some publicly, some just in our own minds of, okay, in this situation, this is how I would handle it. Yep. So I did that, right? Played out some situations in my head prior to that, that interim tag. And did it prepare me? Maybe. Was I prepared? No, right? No one's prepared, especially mid-season where you're trying to change things and, and uh, you know, really change around the season so, so that way guys can have success, right? In, in, in our conference, right, like I said, we were one game away from getting in the conference tournament, uh, so we were right there. And did I question myself? Maybe at times, um, but never doubted whether or not I wanted to be a head coach. And, and 
never doubted that I wanted to be head coach at Rockford University. Um, like I said, been there from the area, uh, really bought into the to the university, really bought into the program and the guys there. Um, so never crossed my mind like if I wanted to be the head coach or if I wanted to be the head coach there. I, I wanted to since since I came there and figured out that there was an opportunity to coach at the college level. Um, you know, because my dad was a coach, uh, I was constantly around around the gym and around coaches, and uh, that's where you know, that's where I knew I wanted to be. Uh, so never questioned that, but you know, maybe question some things of X's and O's or substitution decisions, um, those kind of things. Uh, but also at the same time, knew hey, it's going to take some time. It's going to take some uh, some luck, right? We all need luck to get have a little bit of success, and, and we were fortunate enough to, like I said, had a great player join us mid-season and, you know, kind of change around the fortune of our the last not eight, nine games uh, to put us in position. All right. So um, I guess you got, you got, you got that situation. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to skip one here because I think this, this fits in. So now you've, you've been that head coach, you're, you're, doing your thing you've kind of learned in that first year let's go back as your time as a head coach something you learned that you wouldn't do again you're like oh man I thought this is a great idea or, or I thought this was the way to go um that you wouldn't that you wouldn't do again nothing major now that I've been an assistant uh for the last three years uh, nothing major for me. It'd be smaller things. Um, you know, I, I wasn't the greatest at necessarily um, relegating things to to my assistants, right? I, I felt like I always had to be involved in in a lot of different things, and um, I think I improved upon that as my time as a head coach went on, uh, to where you know let my assistants take the lead role and really be the main main point of what they're in charge of. Um, I had a great assistant, uh, Taylor Stinson, who's now the women's coach there. Um, he was great with conditioning, uh, our strength and conditioning program. So I let him really take the lead on that. Uh, so for me, it's more so of figuring out what my staff's strengths and weaknesses are and letting them be the charge in those strengths, but also you know helping them improve in their weaknesses. Um, and there's there some small things, right? Some fundraising ideas. I, uh, we had to fundraise a ton to get our guys some, some stuff for the program. Uh, and I thought, you know, like a Buffalo Wild Wings uh, fundraiser was a good idea. Uh, Chipotle, which is great for me. I always view, hey, if I can get 20 bucks towards the program, that's awesome, right? But trying to figure out some bigger things uh, to help, help grow the program, uh, not just financially, but just being recognized. Those kind of things, and, and uh, like I said, just more so relegating things to the staff to allow them to utilize their strengths. Because uh, as we all know, right, it, when you're around a program and you get a freshman, uh, over the time, four years later, right, if they're hearing the same voice, hearing the same thing over and over again, right, it tends to go in one ear out the other by the time they're a senior. Not in a sign of disrespect, just they've heard the same message for four years. Uh, so I, I wanted to take a step back. I should have taken a step back more in some things uh, to allow my assistants to use their voice. Uh, so that way, when I was 
speaking up and coaching and teaching things, uh, my voice still held held a ton of weight. So you're saying the the popcorn sales didn't work for the fundraising, like everybody else does? Uh, no. <laughs> that's the hardest. I feel like that's the hardest one, no matter where you are. Huh? Trying to figure out fundraising, like you know, especially now after COVID, that's even even harder. You know, uh, uh, programs that can do it and make thousands of dollars, you know, more credit to them. Uh, right. and I've learned, you know, right, what worked in one situation might not work in another, and what didn't work in one might work in a different one. So. Uh, it's, it's crucial, but, you know, when we had success doing fundraising, we had great families and great support there. Uh, so it's, it was everybody buying it. All right. So I want to touch on something you said about delegating to your, your staff, right? I, I, you know, a lot of times, especially when maybe you have new staff or, or you're, you're, like you said, you're changing things that all, that all sounds great in theory, right? But I want to talk about putting into practice. So maybe educating your staff or, or helping your staff. Yeah, you know, somebody's good at strength and conditioning or, or, or defense or whatever it may be. How do you help your staff integrate that all into that same message, right? You know, because they have their strengths, but they may not be good at this aspect of what you want to do offensively, defensively, whatever, whatever it may be. So how do you integrate all that? We had a lot of staff meetings. And that was the best part about summertime is, uh, you know, when we're not on recruiting or having recruits on campus, we had a lot of staff meetings and impromptu ones, right? Just sitting in the office or sitting at lunch talking about basketball, X's and O's, or, you know, what can we do to, to improve the program? Uh, you know, we figured out at the end of the year, okay, what do we need to get better at? And we say, okay, one year it was defense, right? Our, our defense needs to improve. So what can we change? Um, philosophy wise to, to improve that. So for us, right, like we had a staff, I had a staff of a full-time assistant, a GA, and then I was fortunate uh, to have a volunteer assistant as well. So a pretty big staff, especially for a D3 level. And we, we put together our, our own thoughts and we'd share them. And we decided as a staff, okay, this is what we think can work. This is what we don't think can work. And whether or not we ended up agreeing or disagreeing on certain things, whatever was decided, that's what we went out and we shared with our team. Uh, so it was, you know, figuring out what we wanted to do defensively or offensively um, or just the day-to-day -day operations of what we were going to do with our program. Everybody had a say in it. And everybody brought different ideas, different thoughts to it. Uh, so it, everybody was learning from everybody on staff. Uh, we also utilized our, our connections to coaches outside of our program, right, to get different thoughts from them on what they do or um, different opinions on things uh, to be able to do that. Like, uh, for example, my last year at Rockford, we, we implemented a one-three-one defense. Uh, well, I was fortunate enough through social media to develop some sort of relationship at the time with uh, Rick Carter, who was – Xavier assistant at DePaul for a few years. Uh, so I was able to call him and say, hey, can you teach us your one three one defense? And through a, a phone call with him, uh, we were able to, as a staff, learn uh, what Xavier did or what he, you know, what they did at the time with their one three one defense. And uh, just utilizing those things and, and our own personal relationships with other coaches to get 
different ideas. And then we would share them and, and as a staff agree on, on one thing. And that's how we went on, went about teaching it to, to our guys. So I, I want to get into a little bit, uh, as Todd and I joke with all of our guests, we love to do our homework on our guests. And uh, we saw that your bachelor's degree is in math. Yep. So we wanted to kind of turn that into a little bit of basketball for you. You know, there's so many numbers, like whether it's Huddle or Lucio, or, or there, there's so many numbers out there in basketball. For you, what were some of the keys to using numbers, utilizing numbers to your success? And then was there any stats that you used specifically? Stats that we focused on were rebounding, assist, and turnovers. Uh, we felt like if we won the rebounding battle, obviously, I mean, it sounds simple, right? Keep your turnovers down, win the rebounding battle, you're going to put yourself in, in a position to be successful. And we did. Those were the numbers that we focused on. Um, you know, we wanted high assists because we want to share the basketball. We wanted to be uh, versatile amongst our guys. Uh, and then, you know, just utilizing those numbers. But then, like, I played for, for Steve Gores in high school. You know, his, his big thing was uh, making more free throws than, than our opponents attempted. So that was kind of something that, that I kept an eye on just to kind of see where, where we were at and what the, the correlation was between our wins and losses. Uh, but the biggest three that we focused on was was the rebounding battle, high assist, and, and low turnovers. Uh, so, yes, being a, a math major, uh, numbers were crucial. And I think the summer – actually, the summer of the year I resigned from Rockford, uh, my assistant and I went through and figured out what the, the close games that we lost – Right, we were trying to figure out how many possessions roughly were where we would have done something. If we would have had different results, would have ended up in, in a victory for us. Uh, so we figured out that the three average of three possessions a game was kind of what the the difference was in, in those close games. And then I, I really wanted to get into two with you, especially is marketing yourself. You know, you have a really strong presence on Twitter. I, I, I do feel like you're a good Twitter follower for coaches. You do put out some good content. Some of it's funny, but you know, you do, you do put out some, some good content. And we recently talked to one of our other guests, Jason Tucker about it, who's very active on Twitter as well. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about you know, using social media to your advantage as a coach and kind of using it to market yourself a little bit, um, you know, to, for you, the betterment of you as well. Um, you know, I just wondered what your kind of your thoughts were about, you know, using social media to your advantage. I think social media is great. Uh, I think obviously if it's used in the correct way, I, I think you can yield a lot of success for what you're trying to get out of it. Um, in the last year, year and a half, I really try to make a conscious effort of getting our seniors recruited. Um, yes, I, I have fortunate enough to have a ton of, of coaches follow me um, and a ton of people that utilize their social media platform to help kids get recruited as well. Uh, so that's, that's kind of been my focus for the last two years. Um, I'm big on, I'll send a lot of tweets to myself, uh, you know, whether it's a, a play that somebody posted or an article that somebody posted. So I have a, a text thread with myself of tweets to keep, uh, to keep track of and, and look back on. Um, you know, I, 
depends on who you talk to, whether or not I'm a good Twitter follower or my tweets are, are good, bad, or indifferent. Um, but I, I try to every once in a while put something out that, you know, either for me personally, that's what I felt um, in regards to, um, you know, like a player development idea or offensively philosophy, defensive philosophy, uh, try to learn some things, try to, to make sure that it's, it's always positive um, in, in some sort of fashion. Uh, but like I said, now my, my biggest focus is, uh, is helping our seniors get recruited. All right, so I want to go now to the next transition, right? Going back to that high school game as an, as an assistant. Um, you know, and that, that can be tough, right? You're a college, you're a college head coach. Um, you, you make that change. Um, so with that experience, um, you know, how, how did you approach that and, you know, in bringing your knowledge to the program, right? But so not because I think it'd be hard to not be too, you know, like, oh, this is how I did it. You know what I mean? Um, uh, it's a hard it's a hard transition, right? You're like the man in charge of a big program. And then you're you're an, you're an assistant yep. at, the, at the high school level and you're trying not to be too overbearing with it and, and maybe mean too information overload. It's it. It was tough at times. Uh, especially the first year. But what I really try to do is sit back and learn, right? New program, completely new program, right? I, I had known the Lockport program a little bit because we had tried to recruit some of their guys um, prior to me joining the program. Uh, so I knew a little bit about it just from what they've said and, and obviously going out and recruiting, watching their games. But there is a lot to learn. Uh, so I try to learn, but also at the same time offer suggestions different ideas that either, you know, I personally had during my high school time or just things that um, we had done in our program that I think could translate to the, to the high school level. Uh, it was tough at times not to, uh, you know, try to step on anyone's toes, uh, but at the same time, Coach Hespel allowed me and has allowed me to to voice my thoughts and opinions and, and to really coach the guys. Uh, so that's, you know, I'm fortunate to be able to do that. And we have a good relationship to, to allow me to do that without feeling like, you know, I'm stepping on his toes and he doesn't feel uh, threatened because trust me, there's a lot of things that I don't know uh, that I, I'm still trying to learn and want to learn and uh, sharing those ideas. But, uh, it was it was tough at first, but after learning what uh, what the program does and, and what they're all about and, and how they do certain things, uh, you know, my goal is just to to add to that and you know maybe offer different suggestions to to doing things differently, but with the, the same end result, um, whether that's offensively or or player development wise or even program wise. Right? What what can we do uh, to make this better for us? So. He's been great to, to let me voice that opinion, and I'm fortunate for that. All right, so we're going to pivot, and we're going to put you on the spot for a second. This is this is where it's going to get a little fun, Todd. I'm going to go a little off the cuff with him. So now that you're in the high school game, tell me the biggest change you would like to see to the high school game. I know everybody wants to play shot clock, but I am, I am anti-high school shot clock. Hmm. Uh, 
So I, that might be one of the might be one of the first. I John. know. I was, I was thinking first. that. All right. So tell us tell us why, Coach. Why why we would like the other side of this argument. Everybody wants a shot clock, right? Because it, it speeds up the game, um, takes away the play game. Uh, but for me, that shot clock really only benefits a small percentage of kids, right? Because ultimately, everybody's thought process is it's preparing kids for the next level. And it does, right? Because it, it allows them to understand the playing with the shot clock, understand the awareness of playing with the shot clock. But to me, it also takes away that concept of the upsets, right? To where the, the less talented team, right? If they are disciplined, if they are, are keep their, their turnovers low and make some big shots, make some big plays, right? They can create those upsets, right? It, it can still happen with shot clock, but, you know, the likeliness of that happening, the percentages are going to go down. Uh, so for me, it takes away what high school is. Uh, if, if you if you add the shot clock, right? High school is the upsets, the the Cinderella stories. Um, you know, it, but at the same time, basketball really hasn't changed, right? The the teams that are going to play up tempo are still going to play up tempo. The teams that are going to play slow pace are still going to play slow pace. So, um, you know, whether it's a thirty second shot clock or twenty four or whatever you know people wanted at, uh, you're still going to have those long possessions. And if a team that, that's going to utilize that shot clock for the full 30, if they get an offensive rebound, they're going to utilize it for another 30 seconds. So you're still going to have those slow-paced games if you can't force the turnovers and, and capitalize on those. So I, I, I would love to see the high school game stay the way it is. Uh, but also at the same time, coaching with the shot clock is exciting because you, you get to coach at a faster pace, right? You get to play the game. Everybody's forced to play it at, at a faster pace. And for me, uh, I want to get up and run. So for me, whether it's a shot clock or no shot clock, uh, I'd like my team to play fast. I, I always looked at it as a defensive end because I'm a defensive guy, so I can really mess with you with a shot clock. I can give you a, I can give you all kinds of kinds of nonsense and see if you can have a good have a good set with 10 seconds left on on the clock in the red. Yes. Oh, yeah. there's a lot of things, right? When uh, when the shot clock changed, I know a lot of teams, especially at Division One level, what they did is they went to zone presses, right, to really slow down the game and make teams play at their possessions at you know 10, 15 seconds rather than giving them a full a full shot clock. So there's ways to still negate it and still play that slower paced game, and, and I think that's what you'll see. I think if there's a shot clock at the high school level, you'll see more zone defenses, uh, whether it's in the half court or the, or the full court. You know, for us, like we play one, two, two, uh, that's, that's what we're going to play. And we're going to slow teams down and, and you see teams against us play long possessions. So we wanted to kind of tweak it and something I, I was reading a little bit on, you know, before you got to Rockford, obviously as a player and, you know, before you had gotten there that, We'll just, we're just going to say the record wasn't very good. <laughs> and, you know, after you got there, you know, the record improved. Uh, we're just going to say by many wins. What, what was it like to kind of try to change a program's culture as a, as a player? You know, we've talked to many people about changing the program's culture as a coach, but kind of as on the player side, what was it like to kind of change that culture? I, mean, I, I don't know what the culture was before I arrived. Um, 
and by no means did the culture change just because of me. Uh, we had, I think, eight or nine new guys to the program. But I think the biggest thing about why we were so successful is we were basketball players. Like, we were gym rats. We were guys that were in the gym all the time, um, you know, playing open gyms multiple days throughout the week. Uh, on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, we just played all the time. Uh, we spent a lot of time outside the gym together. And we, not going to lie, we were talented. <laughs> we were really, really good. We had uh, like Rennell Taylor from Hales Franciscan during their time that they were good there in the early 2000s. Um, Brandon Williams was, was on the Westinghouse team uh, when they won state. So we had a lot of talented guys. Taylor Stinson from Lyme High School who, who had a, up until this season uh, a lot of our three-point records at Rockford. So we had a lot of talent, but we had guys that just played basketball, and, that, and that's how we played. I think we had in four or five offensive plays, um, but we also had I think, three point guards on the floor at one time uh, with a good shooter and, and a great big. So we just played, and, and we had a nice stretch there at the end of that season. I think we won 10 out of 11 games, um, lost in the semifinals in the conference tournament. Uh, but a lot of it had to do with we just played basketball, we were talented, and we got along with each other off the court. All right, so I'm going to follow up on that a little bit. Um, right, that seems to be, I, I, I guess, more specialization, but maybe that seems to be a lost art. There's a lot of things that pull kids now, right? There's, there's the high academics, there's, right, you know, kids that play multiple sports, maybe maybe have a harder time because they're want to specialize and things like that so at the high school level now um what are some of the things you guys are doing to obviously realizing that you know maybe kids aren't in the gym or, or can't be because there's so many schedule demands on them yeah as much as you know when we were when we were younger right we're selling ourselves old right back in the day but yeah. um what are some of the things you guys do to kind of to help that process Maybe, maybe besides open gyms and, and the obvious things like that at, with your program. It is tough, right? And, you know, AAU's big now. Um, travel sports in general are big now. So instead of guys playing, like we all grew up, we played in more local leagues, right? Whether it was it was baseball, basketball, or whatever yeah. sport. We usually played local, and then every once in a while, probably playing in a tournament outside of our area, right? But probably most of the time, it was somewhat local. So you could go from, uh, you know, open gym at 3.30 in the afternoon after school, during school day, to a 6 o'clock baseball game during the week, right? Whereas now kids are traveling all the time, um, not just an hour away. They're, you know, going states away, right? And it's not just baseball. It's soccer. It's um, football, seven-on-sevens, right? Nothing's – Right, everything, yeah. Unfortunately. Uh, so it is tough to get kids – that are multi-sport athletes to, to be there all the time or be there as much as you would like. Um, but it's, it's understanding that, hey, those kids are still getting in the gym and are still getting better. But really for us and for, like, for our staff, it's, it's having the conversations with kids of where we want them to get better, right? What areas we want them to improve upon. Um, in a perfect world, I'd love for our guys to be in our gym all times, right? Seven days a week whenever they wanted to get in there, right, calling us or, or be able to go in there um, on their own. But uh, unfortunately, it's not, uh, it's not able to happen as much as we would like. But 
if we have a plan and, and you know an understanding of hey we want you to become a better shooter here's what you can do to do that and if they're doing that uh, whether it's in their local you know our local YMCA or, or whatever it may be you know, that, that's what we're going to do because we're going to see the results of the work they put in whether it's in our gym or some other gym we're going to see it in June uh, like for us we, we have camp here in two weeks right we're going to be able to see what work they've put in and what work they haven't put in uh, since the end of the season so uh, it's tough we, we have quite a few multi-sport athletes but uh, but we support them you know and, and are positive with them as long as they're playing I think we're going to end up benefiting from it. Right. I, well, I like that piece that you said of having conversations with them, of seeing, of saying, hey, this is where we want you to be. Because that gives them a little responsibility to say, hey, when, you know, we're expecting kind of this level when you come back to camp and, and, and like that. And I, I really believe that, uh, I know we talked a little bit when I was at Piatone and, and during, during COVID, right? We were trying to schedule a game or whatever, but um, that really helped. I think players and coaches to see that like, it doesn't always have to be in the gym, right? So many resources came out of that to like, and realizing, Hey, we can use technology. Like, Hey, here's this five minute video. Like you can do this dribbling workout for five minutes. It only takes five minutes of your day. You can do it between practice or going to baseball or whatever to, um, to, there's, always, there's always ways to improve. Right. And like you said, like technology, is through the roof now as far as improvement. Like we use Huddle. Uh, our coaching staff puts a lot of clips together of areas that we need to improve at, as a team uh, to be able to do that. Or I'll even watch film with, with guys offensively, individually, and show them different things or just talking to them, right? We, we need you to improve as a shooter, right? Here's what I want you to do. Like for us, we have a junior that's going to take on a bigger role for us as a senior this year or next year. Uh, I challenged right? I said, hey, I want you to make 10,000 shots from the time school ends to when school starts up in August, right, and, and to be able to do that. I'm going to see the results of it because he's going to become a more consistent, better shooter, but he's also going to see the results of it over time where he's playing um, AAU in, in May, playing AAU in July. Uh, we're going to see him in June, right, having him the whole month of June, so everybody's going to see the results of the work that's consistently put in uh, to be able to not only help us, but usually our guys want to play college basketball. So this is where you have to be at if you want to play college basketball at the highest level that you can play at. So it is having conversations. It is showing them clips of, okay, this is what I'm talking about to where you need to improve upon or where we want to see you improve upon. Um, because everybody wants to see that, that, correlation between what you're saying and what a pro is doing right everybody wants to be Steph Curry everybody wants to be JJ Redick but they don't understand what those guys did to become the great shooters that they are right they didn't didn't come to practice from 3 30 5 30 to make themselves great shooters they were before practice or they were after practice like my saying is arrive early stay late and, and our guys have taken advantage of that here in Lockport the last couple of years I've been here of staying after practice and getting up extra shots and, and it's paid off for them. And guess who else benefits from it? We do as, as a team, right? It, it's a reason why we've been successful in, in a very consistent program the last three years is because of the work that our guys put in um, outside of practice. Like we have a lot of basketball players uh, in our program, and I think it's shown. 
All right, so we're 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 gonna brag on you a little bit, Coach. Um, totally, you, I like this now. The single season Rockford University steals leader. Um, so I, I, I'm gonna tweak it a little bit. Like, you know, a lot of that is obviously anticipation and playing basketball. But but what are what are some of the things you're talking about with your players defensively? Um, you know, obviously some of those steals come on the ball. But I would venture to guess a lot of those steals came maybe off the ball as well, right? Uh, being in the right spot, the help spot, anticipation, things like that. So when you're having conversations with your players, um, even going back to when you were playing, what like some of the things you were thinking, some of the things you were trying to – positions you were trying to put yourself in to, to have that success um, on, on defense? Offenses tend to be robotic, right? Right, that's that's usually a big off or big argument. Talk about offenses, oh, more freedom and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I was fortunate that I played for a great high school coach that put together scouting reports. Right, we went over during the week what that team was going to run offensively. Uh, we did the same thing at Rockford. Right, we were very prepared for what those teams were going to do, X's and O's wise. Uh, so I I was able to to know and understand what those teams are going to run, right? Or uh, I was fortunate enough, my, you know, I'm not the most athletic. Uh, I'm the slowest guy on the floor uh, pretty much every game I've ever played in. Barely can touch rim. Uh, but at a young age, my dad taught me, like, hey, you might not be able to physically guard that player, but if that player can't touch the basketball, he can't do a whole lot with it offensively. So I tried to make it tough or, you know, my opponent to be able to catch the basketball to where they wanted to catch it, you know, or um, I understood, or I could see plays developing ahead of time to where I knew that where this guy was going to throw the pass and I was going to play the pass. Um, I think of the 81 steals I had that season, I would say less than five were on the basketball because uh, I was in a lot of trouble if my guy caught the ball. Um, so I tried not to let him catch it and keep myself out of position uh, to be able to actually guard somebody. But I did have a knack for finding the basketball, um, play the passing lanes a ton, and and get steals that way because, again, I knew or anticipated where that next pass was going to be made. Um, right? Teams run offenses. They know, okay, if I pass it to the wing, that next pass is probably going to the top of the key, reversing it to the other side. And players tend to get in bad habits of catching and just throwing Right. So I, I, I was able to get fortunate to get steals that way. Um, and for me, as a coach, that's what I try to teach players or talk to them about, because a lot of it's feel, right? Playing the game, having a feel for it, and understanding that players aren't as smart as everybody likes to make them out to be, right? There, there's a lot of robots. There's a lot of laziness and catching and then just throwing, right? Not necessarily seeing where the defense is at, um, but getting guys to understand there's a reason why we put scouting reports together as coaches, right? So you can understand and know what that team's going to run. So that way you can put yourself in position or our defensive game plan for what they were going to do offensively in their actions uh, to put you in position to either take things away or take advantage and, and get some steals out of it. Uh, so that's what we try to do as coaches is, is put together uh, a game plan, put them in position to make plays. Right. It doesn't always have to lead to a steal, but if you get to the deflection and, and disrupt the offense, 
now it also cuts into that shot clock, especially at the, at the college level, right? So now they're rushing things because we had a deflection uh, to take them out of their rhythm. But it definitely wasn't because I was a good defender. Oh, I don't think you're underselling yourself, Coach. But <laughs> all right, so let's. I want to talk about the scouting report piece then. Um, we're watching film on a team. Um, what are some of the things you're looking for? Like John and I have talked all the time of, uh, and, and you know, I'm not as much, I don't see as much as the boys game, but like in the girls game, we talk about like, okay, well, everybody's going to enter it to the right. So like, if we can get them to enter to the left, well, there goes that whole shebang, right? Because they, they, uh, let's be honest. They always enter to the right. They're, they're, most people are righties. They always enter to the right. So, um, take us through your, your, your process of, uh, maybe some of those tendencies and, and not necessarily sets and all that, but like maybe an individual tendency of a player to kind of set that chain in motion, right. To disrupt that set. Like you talked about. We as a staff went together, put together a plan to where we had their top, you know, two or three offensive sets that they were going to run, right. What their main action was. Uh, to get into their their play and those kind of things. Like you said, everybody tends to run into the right side of the floor, right? Predominantly, most players are right-handed, so that's where they're going. Uh, so we wanted to take away either that initial entry pass or some teams, right, wouldn't enter to the wing. They would always enter to the trail, right? So if we knew where they were going to enter, we tried to make it tough for them to enter and make them choose a different uh, option within their offense or take disrupt it, right? Now they're having the, okay, that entry pass isn't there to the wing. Now they're having to pull it out and run something different or get to a different entry and, and throws off their timing and, and things like that. So we tried to take away what their first pass usually is or what they want to make that first pass to be. And, and that's what we would focus on uh, to be able to do it because we had to slow teams down. And, at times we were successful with it, and at times we weren't. But uh, when we were, we usually had good success with it, just taking away that first initial entry pass. Or at least if they catch it, they're not catching it on the three-point line. They're probably catching it five to six feet beyond there. Now they're not in a position to score. Now they're usually on their heels, um, you know, making that next pass so it's a little bit easier to play the passing lanes off that second pass. Or – you know, making them catch it even further away from the basket as well, right? It, just throwing off to where they want to catch it. That's what, that's what our focus was. All right, so as, as we get into our last two segments, um, we call this one 30-second timeout. You know, this is kind of our guests' uh, opportunity to kind of discuss whatever they want. Um, it can be about you or your family or your program, um, you know, something you want our listeners to know about. It doesn't have to be basketball related. It doesn't have to be sports related. And lately we've had guests turning it back on us and asking us questions, um, which has been interesting. So anything you want, the, the floor is yours. Well, I'm, I'm going to steal your guys' question, right? What's similar to it? What's something you would like to see changed about the Illinois high school landscape, right? For example, now high schools only get the month of June. Back in the day, they used to get all of June and all of July, right? What, what's something about the Illinois high school landscape that you, that you guys would love to see either change back to or a different idea? 
I know mine, Jai, but I don't want to steal it. Yeah, no, hit it. I'm talking uh, uh, playoff seating, the regionals and the sectionals, and and all that. Um, I I kind of feel there's a better way to. I know we have a giant state, right? Illinois is huge. Okay. But John and I talk about this every year when the seeding comes out, yes. especially the girls' side. We have, yes. what was it, 4A? It was Stevenson. It was this. It was that, right? Like everybody, the more. But then there's a team over here next to the city that gets, right, a, a, a kind of a run, run through. Um, I, I, I kind of feel like there's a better way to do it. I know we want to be regionalized and all that, but at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of games before the state championship that are very close to state champ championship games. Um, you know, when, when you got these teams battling out that have tremendous records and, you know, they get a four seed because they're, I don't know, they have four losses and the other teams have one, two and three, you know what I mean? I, 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 I don't know. I'm not, smart. I'm not smart enough to figure out the best way to do it, to be honest. But I, I feel like, especially up in the Chicago area, um, in, in the suburbs, there's there's got to be a way to kind of balance that out and figure it out. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to add to that and then and then kind of add something else. I, I think that is an issue. I think it's, you know, for example, I mean, in a lot of sectionals, it's like the whole conference is then a sectional. And, and I think that that is a struggle at times, you know, where like, you know, two local conferences make up one sectional and, you know, you have teams that are playing each other three and four times a year. And, you know, for example, the three, a title game for girls basketball was Todd, two of Todd's conference opponents playing each other in the state title game. So it's almost like something something doesn't add up with that. And again, I'm, I'm not going to pretend I know the answer. The other thing I've often thought about is how we kind of do the state title games and how there's been a lot of, you know, like not a lot of people are going to the games and, and those, those kind of discussions. And something I've often thought about is, you know, for if, if you really look at one one a basketball, for example, versus four a basketball, sure, in four a they're the outliers like Edwardsville and, and the really big schools in Illinois. But I but I think for the most part, four a basketball is the majority of the schools up here. And I and I think one thing that could be looked at well if you really want to get schools, if you really want to get attendance and it's two schools up here, why are we having both fan bases drive to Bloomington like if it's Barrington versus Stevenson, why are we having them drive to Bloomington? Or a couple of years ago, Todd and I, our, our two teams played in a sectional semifinal that was in Woodstock. We drove an hour and 20 minutes apiece to play each other who are 25 minutes apart. So I, I, I do think there's, there's an element of just location to possibly get higher attendance. I, I, I do think that would help. Because I don't blame Todd and my fan bases to drive an hour and 20 minutes and a Thursday night when the two schools are 25 minutes apart. So I, I do think that plays into it a little bit. So I, I would add the attendance piece as well. Yeah, you're going to throw this thought out, just something that, that I thought about with in regards to the attendance. I remember watching as a kid growing up, watching on, on the, uh, the cable channel, the state finals games, and remembering how packed it used to be in Peoria. Right, like it used to be packed in, in the early 2000s and even before then. Um, 
the the emphasis on high school sports compared to travel sports. Yep. Right. What are your What are your thoughts on that, or, or does that play a role in? Um, you know, you, you you still see the big crowds, right? The, the mm -hmm. two top teams from the city are playing each other. It's always going to be a packed house. Why? Because mm -hmm. they want to get a ton of talent, and you know you're going to see a high level basketball game, right? But the, does does high school sports have the same magic, right? Same level of importance that it did uh, 15, 20 years ago compared to the uh, excitement that's built around travel sports. And don't get me wrong, uh, travel sports is important and there's, there's definitely a place for it. Uh, and obviously we want all of our kids to take advantage of it, but the, the plan for your high school mean as much today that it did you know, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, do you no, I, I would say probably, probably not. Um, I also feel the, uh, I, don't, I got, I got buddies who go to AU and we, we talk about this all the time. Um, you know, I, I feel like it's, it's blown up to the point where it's, it starts to get watered down and it, uh, and I, I look at it more, I, I did more travel baseball, but you know, there's an A and a B and a C team and, you know, we, we got, there's a, there's a lot of teams and I, I also look at travel sports as a lot of times these tournaments aren't necessarily being, and it's kind of going off a tangent, but I'm being fair to their, the, the teams that are in it with the amount of money it costs to get into one of these, one of these events for their parents. They're going for uh, X amount of games and, you know, you got mom, dad, brother, sister. Well, you just spent $200, right? Um, so I, I think that important, yeah, well, right. I, I'm probably, I'm probably, uh, Coach Weber's giving the, the higher, but like, I, you know, uh, um, so I, I think high school has lost a, a, a little bit of that, Um but I also think that depends on the high school you're at and the emphasis and, 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 and things like that. So, you know, there's definitely that, that pool. Um, but you know, I also think that there's a, a good way to help your players to find a balance, right? Help them find good AAU programs and help them do that. So I, I've done both ways. So I'm not, I'm going to kind of ride the fence here, right? I'm going to be on the fence, but, but I, I definitely think there's some improvements, the, the, the AU side, the, the travel side could do to, to accommodate their players and their teams. Um, you know, but I, but I, I think high school's lost its luster a little bit. I, I guess I would, I would add two things. I think first, I think, yes, it's lost its luster here, but I don't think it's lost its luster in Quincy, Illinois. I think th there it's everything. It's on the radio, it's on TV. So I would say that the other thing I think sometimes it's lost its luster a little bit is maybe basketball does need to be like, and Todd and I've talked about this before, like football where everybody doesn't make the playoffs. I mean, how many 
how many first round playoff games do you see where the one seed plays the 18 seed or whoever won the play in game? And there, there was a game I saw, it was like 90 to six. I mean, how is that fun for the team that's winning or the team that's losing or the fan bases or, or really anybody involved? So, you know, I, I, I often wonder, you know, maybe when we seed the, the high school playoffs, maybe it is only seeds one through 12 that get it. And, and, you know, it, I understand that might be controversial because we want to give everybody that opportunity, but you know, what opportunity are we giving when your team is losing 90 to six? Like, I, I don't, I'm not sure what that opportunity is. So I, I do think that could add an element of imagine how cool it would be at the end of the season. If you only had 12 of the 18 seeds in a sectional, I mean, th- those, those votes would actually matter. I think people would actually take that more seriously as well. Whereas right now, especially with it not in person, there's teams that just look at people's record. They don't look at your strength of schedule and they're like one through 18 done, turn it in. So, you know, I think if people's playoff lives were on the line, I, I, I think it would be looked at a little bit more. So that was, that was a good discussion, coach. Thank you for that. It's just being back at the high school level. It's just something that I've thought about. How sports has played for, for, a pretty good high school program, great high school coach. Um, I remember the excitement that used to be that we had around our games, right? Even the conference game, like we had packed student sections and being out recruiting uh, at Rockford and, and even being at our games now, like it's crazy the the crowds that, that I've seen at these high school games, you know, and, and quote unquote, even at rival games. Right, not not really a, a ton of, of crowds there because one, I mean, the advancements in technology, right? You can watch games online, uh, you can see the live stream compared to 15, 20 years ago when I was in high school, right? If the team had live stream, they were extremely fortunate to have it, right? No one else had it, but in order to watch the game, in order to know what's going on, you had to be at the game. So uh, being able to find out what's going on in the game, you know, with advancements in technologies, uh, which is great. But, uh, but I'd love to see see some packed gyms, uh, especially in some of the historic historical gyms uh, around this area, right? And see some big crowds. No, I, I do. I, I think tech, I think your technology point is, is very valid. I mean, if you if you can watch the game at home, you know, on on your couch, it's it's not like when the three of us were in high school. That, like you said, that wasn't an option. But wanted to, it wasn't even an option to text each other. I would have to hit like twelve buttons to get the letter S. So I, I think it is. I think <laughs> technology does does play. Uh, does and then you'd mess it up, and you have to go back and do it again. And yep. then we get to some symbol. Yeah, we're we're dating ourselves now. Yep. Big time. <laughs> that's not that long ago. That's the crazy part about it. It really isn't. It really is. All right, coach. This is where we kind of usually get off the rails. All right. This is quick hitters. Um, we're just going to throw random rapid fire questions at you. You answer any way you please, and we'll go from there. Um, all right. So I, I guess the best stealer, right? Defensive stealer you've coached or, or, or a player you've seen at any level, like one of the better defensive players that, that you've seen. I, I was fortunate enough to coach two back-to-back conference defensive players a year. Um, those guys won it for different ways, right? One of them was the all-time shot block record at Rockford. Um, Zach Law is a phenomenal player for us. Trey Bloomhurst was a guy that could guard one through five for us. Um, 
But if there's one guy that uh, was probably the best at playing passing lanes and getting steals, uh, is actually the career record holder now at Rockford, Brandon Edwards. Uh, kind of similar to how I did, right? You kind of lay in the weeds, uh, kind of wait for those guys to throw some lazy passes, and, and he played the passing lanes that way. He also had this unique ability, which, trust me, I can't take credit for his coach because I had nothing to do with it. He would be able to steal the inbounds pass, right? We'd score a basket, kind of like what the, the guy for the Nets does. Uh, I think it's the Nets. Uh, where he kind of lays in the weeds in a little bit. Guys think that, you know, no one's around. You kind of just turn and flip it in. He got a ton of steals that way. Uh, so he, he's probably the best that I, I've coached uh, in, in regard to, to creating turnovers and getting steals. Yeah, nobody doing like Jose Alvarado stuff, hiding in the corner and then sneaking up on people. That's what he kind of did. He yeah, did, he did see that. Was, he used Jose Alvarado. Yep, he scored the, the basket, you know, inbounder kind of turns and just – you know, flips it in to, to the point guard. Hang around and just steal it. Yeah. He was uh, like he got a knack for the basketball, that's for sure. All right, so, you know, we we do know you have a good Twitter uh, presence, but who's, like, your favorite follow? Um, there's a ton of them. Uh, I know one of them, Airman. I know you had him on your guys' podcast. Um, he posts a lot of good stuff with, in regards to offenses uh, and defenses. Uh, fast draw, fast model. They post a lot of good things on there. Um, you know, whether it's drills or, or plays. Um, you know, everyone's an influencer on Twitter, right? Everyone is uh, is sharing something. So, uh, for me, if, if you're posting plays, drills, you know, I, I'm probably going to steal them from you and, and put them away uh, for when I get an opportunity to, to do that again. So, uh, those two guys are probably the those two accounts probably the biggest ones that that I taking things away from all right well not to self-promote we just put some good las vegas aces stuff out there today so perfect <laughs> all right uh favorite rockford food stop what's your what was the rockford food place where are we going yeah uh beef Roo was was a local local Ooh, yeah. restaurant, uh kind of similar to portillo's uh, although they just got portillo's uh, a couple years ago so Beef Root, I would say, would be the one Rockford, uh, the one Rockford staple that uh, if you're in the area, you got to stop through there. Yeah, I've been there a couple of times. I played baseball at Benedictine, so we made that yep, made that trip. Yeah, we used to play up on that hill, you know. We'd play up on the hill. So yes. now they, they they used to, that's when that's how old I see that's dating myself too because they don't play on the hill no more. They oh, play wow. they play at the road rate or the road whatever what is it called now? I don't know what it's called. because they got the uh, they got the college college summer league over there but yeah you're you're part of that original crew up there playing on the hill yeah uh, they still use it for jv games every once in a while but uh yeah they don't play on campus you just anymore. hope the wind was blowing out because the wind was blowing in you it wasn't gonna be a good day for you oh, nope see and and i coached at dominican in the same conference as rockford and i never got beef for root so now i want us to go to beef for root beef for is good stuff see when we went to river forest uh Coach Robson was, was huge on finding, like, a, a local pizza place uh, when we'd go on road games. Uh, he found this one in River Forest, Bertoli's. Yep. That was the place. Once he got it, we made sure when we were playing Concordia, Chicago, and Dominican uh, that we got Bertoli's every time. Yes. Bertoli. I, I, my assistant, who's that Marion now up in Fond du Lac, 
he always calls me every year asking what the what the place is. He never remembers what it is. Yeah. <laughs> like, where's that place again? <laughs> yeah, Bertoli's. That's that's the place to go if you're in River Forest. Yes, Bertoli's Bertoli's is very good. Um, all right. So this this might be a controversial one for many people, but we want to know for you, if you're eating wings, are you ranch or blue cheese? Ranch. All right. He can, the, he can stand. He can stay. Yeah. Got the uh, even got the influences on on my two young daughters. They uh, they got to have ranch with everything now. So it's uh, well, yeah. When you have when you have kids, it's ranch or ketchup or yeah. Well, yeah. wait a minute. Do you have do you have like a favorite wings place? Ooh. I don't know. But I, there was a spot in, in the Rockford area. I think it's called Boots now. Uh, there's a bar and grill. They had they had different flavored wings. Uh, so really, uh, you know, when I go out, it's it's usually the wings for for dinner. So can't can't go wrong with them. Man. All right. So well, same same kind of thing here. Hot or iced coffee, and where are you getting it from? Where are you getting your coffee from? Or maybe a coffee guy. Maybe you might not be a coffee guy. Never, never had a drink of coffee. So really, oh. wow. Okay. Then what are you going with? What is your uh, perk up drink i should say like what do you, what are you going to are you like mountain dew or are you about doo doo do you're, you're for me it's usually pepsi okay uh, but uh i think i've had so much pepsi that there's no uh there's no perk up out of it <laughs> kind of immune to it um it, it's let's just say i drink so much pepsi that my four-year-old daughter is quoted the line from home alone uh and started telling me no more pepsi fuller so <laughs> Yeah, so anybody knows me usually knows I, I usually have a can or a bottle of Pepsi uh, on me for my go-to drink. I'm not a I'm not a Pepsi guy per se, but Wild Cherry Pepsi, and if it's from Taco Bell, it's even better. Ooh, Coke Coke from McDonald's is the uh, yeah, no, that's pretty good too. Yeah, yeah, Spray, but Wild Cherry Spray, Wild Cherry yeah. Pepsi from Taco Bell, good stuff. I got it right. Good stuff. <laughs> well, all right, coach. So you've never had a cup before we, we let you go. You've never had a cup of coffee. I've never had a Coke or a Pepsi in my life. You're a smart guy. Then. Keep, keep really? Uh, that's a habit that I, I've, I've tried to stop multiple times. Um, I've been successful with it for a couple of weeks and, and you know, something usually happens that uh, <laughs> I got to have a Pepsi and then, then one turns into six and, and <laughs> Have a whole game, so. I figured I figured coffee was better than Monster and Red Bull there in my Harper College days when I was uh -huh. working to eleven. So uh -huh. I figured that was a better choice for my health uh, than oh. uh, than you know. So we went started going to coffee straight black though, no, nothing in it. That's all I am straight black. So. Well, Coach, this is this was actually a really fun episode. I you know I, we Todd and I had a, a really good time. We we talked a lot of basketball. Uh, there, there was some really good content, obviously, about your career and, and about basketball, but some some fun off the court topics. So just thanks for uh, jumping on with us and, and being on our one of our episodes. No, I, I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate what you guys do uh, covering high school sports and coaches and, and all the, the goods and bads that come along with coaching. Way more goods and bads, but uh, you know, it's definitely a great podcast. And anytime I get to talk basketball, it's always a good day. Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Plicky. 
For more show content and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Time Out or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our previous episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts by searching After the Timeout. We appreciate you listening. Tune in next time for more coaching content in-game, out of the game, and anything in between.